Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey y'all, I'm Kelsey. And I'm Sierra. And we're the hosts of Basic Murder Babes, a true crime podcast. We are best friends divided by 300 miles who call each other every week for girl talk and murder stories while unwinding with some drinks. And we record our calls for your enjoyment. If you love coffee, hard seltzer, nostalgic emo music, saving turtles, Gilmore Girls, murder documentaries, or conspiracies, then you're basic. And you'll love our podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and look for new episodes every Wednesday. with the fact that we're both like let's just get into it and then we stared at each other over FaceTime for like 20 seconds how are you Vanya oh I'm good I miss you so much I, I honestly too. if you guys are keeping up with uh, where I'm at in the world right now I am staying with my parents and it's been weeks and I love them they're wonderful people and it's been so fun and and you also probably know that I have crazy insane children so they've been helping with them but you know there is also something to say of you just not being in your own domain your masters of your domain so there's that they're the masters of your domain right now yeah but they're being really really sweet and honestly I feel very lucky for the parents that I have but it is still like that thing where you're kind of like okay so my whole me and my children we're all staying in and my husband in one room we sleep in one room and it's like where do you bone that's my main you, question. Yeah. Sorry. It's getting, it's getting creative, man. It's a good say, thing. Sorry, Jackie, because I know you're listening to this. <laughs> um, but also amazing. I love that you're like, well, where do honest, we do it? No, honestly, where do you do it? The well, bathroom? <laughs> yes. That and you just you have to be like really. Well, it's a huge room, to be honest with you. And this, you know, it's bigger than many of my New York apartments. And we're sort of like behind a uh what are those things? They're like accordion walls. You know, they're like those. Oh, cool... like so. We're... I know. I don't know what yeah. it's called, but I know what you're talking about. You know, like where where like in like a bourgeois, someone gets dressed behind. Anyways, our Ooh. whole bed is behind that, so it's like we're far away from the kids. Anyways, sometimes late at night, I'm just like, "What are you doing?" And then I'm like, <laughs> "You shut your mouth. You sh- don't make a noise. Shut your mouth." Anyway, so that's where we're at right now. It's real amazing. Yeah. I wish that I <laughs> I don't have anything nearly as delightfully scandalous to share with our <laughs> listeners i was like um i'm very sweaty because i cooked uh dinner tonight for my hubs because mm. you know i feel like 
I'm so lucky to have married somebody who is such a good cook. He is. Like, yeah. such a good cook. And so I usually am like, you cook because it's way better than when I cook. But when it's when we decide we're going to do, like, some steak and some roasted vegetables, that's all me. And I actually learned this from uh, you. I learned ooh. how to... Remember when you made me the filet mignon, like yes. right after your daughter was born and mm-hmm. I came over and you cooked me this and I was like, what? Tell me your secret <laughs> powers, woman. And so you kind of taught me like how to make steak. So I always get to do it. But as a result, yeah. in our tiny apartment, um, if once you turn that oven on, period, I don't care if it's on like 170 just to warm something or 425, yeah. which is what you needed at for the steak. Right. It becomes like a full-blown sauna. So I have oh, this yeah. moment of like, should I put some powder on my face and some mascara on before I talk to Vanya? And I was like, no, because it's <laughs> no. just going to be like running down your face. <laughs> no. You, girl, you pretty to me no matter what you look but like. But I Don't will you say, worry. thank you, my dear. I will say <laughs> I make the best goddamn filet mignon. And I, I want did, it. I did it again tonight. And I'm, so I'm, Good well, job. it's your recipe. You don't need me to do it. You know what you're doing. That's true. You know what? I do want that. It's been a while. I, you know, I've been doing veg for half of the week or being veggie-ish just to try and honestly partly because you couldn't get meat and it was like honestly expensive and all the things yeah but I miss it man I think I need it I need some iron like Uh, that's that's good though that's how you reduce your carbon footprint so they say that's what we're trying to do it's very hard though it's important look at you you're doing your part but I also married a a carnivore so Amelia yeah. my daughter was like mom am I an omnivore or a carnivore or an herbivore and I'm like uh I don't you're know like, what do you you're like be? you're not a dinosaur we don't yeah. <laughs> we don't talk about ourselves in those terms that's the but truth. I guess she, an omnivore is bo- is an omnivore both mm-hmm yeah so yeah, we're omnivores. omnivore yeah I'd be like guys do you miss us hi we're five minutes in and we're just talking about Oh, shit. Our yeah. Inter- inter- introduce yourself. <laughs> oh, hi. I'm Vanya. I'm the Rom. Hello, Vanya. Hi. Hi I'm Avrin. <laughs> and I'm the crime. I haven't had any cocktails this evening. And this is Rom Crime. This is our true crime comedy podcast that has... Romantic stabbings that are not romantic. Because, unfortunately, <laughs> none of my romantic quips are fucking romantic. Anyways, yes. Romantic stabbings, I think, right? I mean, I feel like, unfortunately, in this world we live in with rom-crime, romantic stabbings is actually something that's come up before and will probably come up again. Um, But I can't think of a a different descriptor other than, like, romantic um, Baptists. Yeah, I guess (laughs) so, like religious, you know, or I was thinking... Romantic um, choir singers. Oh, that's good. I'll take that because that's a little bit lighter <laughs> than stabbing and, and that's, or cutting. That's, that'll be the part where Avern gets a little judgy when we talk about the documentary. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. So let's just dive in. I'm going to start you all off, which which we've kind of gone for our Twisted Love. By the way, we are covering Twisted Love on ID Discovery on Hulu is where I'm watching it. Yeah. Um, and this episode is episode five and it's called Hell to Pay. Hell. Hail to pay. Hail to pay. And what are we going to call it? We're going to call it Granny Dearest. I love you so much. You're just so fucking funny. Why not, right? (laughs) Like, because, I mean, it's not Mommy Dearest, but it's Granny Dearest. And I think this episode lightly touches. We're just going to dive into the speculation. I'm going to dive in. I can't speak for Avrin, but. I will be diving in myself quite a bit. Yes. All right. I have many thoughts. 
Take us your, away, Vanya. Put your... Uh, Got my listening on, cap on. Because here we go. Okay, so I'm going to open with... Um, Actually, John Thompson, he's the reporter in Fayetteville, Georgia, right? Is that how you say it? That is how you say it, Fayetteville. And I also want to point out that in every single episode of Twisted Love so far, this is five of six, they have a reporter that comes out with a giant archival book. (laughs) <laughs> and they're like flipping through it being like in our town nothing like this had ever happened well before. that's exactly what he said he said that faith was the most important thing in their god-fearing community and i'm kind of like i didn't love this guy to be honest with you but whatever so they sort of he sort of sets the scene and he's like everybody every basically saying every everybody's pretty much uh you know a very christian in that community looked looked like also very white in that community. It's just a very like insular Bible Belt community. And then we see Tom Ketchum, who is the father of Sandy Ketchum. And Sandy is one of our main players in this, uh, this rom crime here. Tom is, I have to be honest, he is kind of like, he's an older guy at this point. Um, but he's kind of good looking. Apparently he's had lots of wives. That's what one of the ladies yeah, mentioned. She's like, well, we don't know. It could be his fourth or third or fourth that was wife. Stepmom three or four, not sure. He was kind of good looking, Jesus. but he also I noticed I'm such a bitch. Apparently Do can it. you guys tell that I'm just getting I watch these episodes that we cover like four times and I start nitpicking stuff. But they do this like it's a it's a close up on him of something that he's gonna say and they're gonna show later in the documentary, but like He's kind of profile, and he has like three or four like strands of long hair that like somebody no, missed. I missed and I, it. I couldn't stop staring. At oh him. my god! Now I have to rewatch. Did he have? Because this morning my son woke up with a mullet, and it was the cutest thing I've ever seen. I have to be honest with you. I um. can only imagine. <laughs> it was not a mullet. It was literally like 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 he'd gotten his hair cut. And somebody just forgot these like little strands of hair. Anyway, I'm a, tw- I'm a terrible, terrible person. No. Can Listen, continue this it's story. all the devil's in the details, honey. The devil's in the details. Don't you worry. And I'm the devil. <laughs> okay, so here we go. So he has his, he's the father of Sandy. He gets full custody of Sandy because, because his mom, because the mother was, he says she's a bad mother. That's what, uh, yeah. And so, anyways, the woman he's with at the time, Elizabeth Ketchum, came into uh, Sandy's life when she was 12 years old. And Elizabeth Ketchum, stepmom, says she was really cute. She did not wear makeup. She was funny and bubbly and all these things. Like, she's basically, I'm also like, why would you mention that she did not wear makeup? But I guess they're in like a religious town. So maybe that was a factor. I don't know. We're going to find out why. (laughs) Right. In 2002, that's true, actually foreshadow in 2002 sandy enters middle school and she changes the way she dresses and how she acts and the dad actually i have to give it to the dad he supports her like so he was basically like she just like a boy and the stepmom's like no she just was playing and all these things but the dad was basically saying my daughter i knew my daughter was gay you know and i love her no matter what i could see it in his eyes and that's what i choose to believe and then we yeah. meet sarah polk griffin her friend so so we sarah, sandy's friend sorry sandy's best friend from that time and they she said that they immediately clicked when and were best friends they were re, they were both rebellious to authority you know cuz you're in middle school um also you know maybe I don't know. They were just so Sandy also like sort of wore baggy clothes and dressed kind of like a boy, too. So there's that. But Sarah Polk Griffin said that Sandy had a shift in the, there was a shift in their friendship when Sarah went 
a more feminine route and Sandy went a more grungy route. And Sarah talks about how they were, there were cliques in school and how Sandy became an outcast. Um, but she still loved her. They were friends, but it was kind of like, I mean, I don't know. We, I think we all have had those moments in our lives where you're, when you're young and you're friends with somebody like maybe going from fifth grade into sixth grade when you're now in middle school and people find their clicks and it's the right. worst, but it is what it is. I had so many feelings about Sarah Pope Griffin because while I definitely believe that like her, her affection and like friendship with San with Sandy was very real. I also was like, Ooh, you just straight up ditched your BFF because she yeah. wasn't cool and yeah, for sure. you liked to wear makeup and dresses and people liked you. So you just left her to dangle in the cruelty of middle school all on Well, and I think that, you know, I really And that happens. That. I know that happens, but go we on, meet, continue. <laughs> no, I, I, it's like, it's actually kind of painful to think about back then that time. I will say like for me, sixth grade was like my worst year of my, like one of my lives, which is hilarious. Not one of my lives. One of the worst years of my life. Because I was like, lives. I didn't know anybody. I'm like a cat. I've got nine lives, everybody. Um, you know, you didn't know anybody. I, I ate in the library. I was in orchestra, which actually was very satisfying, fulfilling. But anyways, not cool. I was not cool in sixth grade. Yeah. But so we get in eighth grade, Sandy finds a kindred spirit in a fellow outcast. And her name was Holly Harvey. Now, stepmom Elizabeth talks about how when they met, Holly was nice and they kind of liked having this bubbly personality around and it was not, it, it brought, it brought Sandy out of her shell and not so, you know, sort of sullen and all those things. But then Elizabeth and dad, daddy Ketchum finds out that they're actually not just BFFs. They're, they love each other. They're gay. And and then this is this is where I wrote I love the dad you can tell he was accepting of her you know I just, yeah. yeah it's weird too because oh, I agree with you he definitely was accepting and 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 you could see how Elizabeth Beth her stepmom really did love her and like right. wanted to be cool with it but just like deep in her core didn't know how to be cool with it so when she talked about it she didn't outright condemn it uh, no like but she when did she not. says when she says like I wouldn't let them sleep in the same room when they yes. sleep over and she's like because I wasn't allowed to have boys like have sex in my mom's house and sleep with boys I wasn't gonna let her do that that's right she's not which to gag. me actually makes yeah. sense like yeah she's in a middle school you don't have exactly. to let her have a sexual relationship but you could tell it was something she struggled with I but I respect that I mean absolutely she's treating her just like she would have treated a boy or a girl you know like whatever right. I like that and then we meet Mary Ellen Ashworth who sang with Sarah Coyle Coiler Collier Collier Thank you. In the in the choir, um, Sarah Collier Collier was one of Holly <clears throat> Holly's grandparents. Ooh, wait, I have to say one thing. Um, so we get like a little insert here of the chief investigator Bruce Jordan, and he's talking about how teenagers are the most dangerous people around in that city or in that township because you know before when the reporter was like, um, "This is we're God fearing, we're just good Christian people." No, 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 nothing bad goes happen happens. But this guy says the teenagers in the city were the worst because you know when they bullied. They bullied what they didn't understand. They were mean. And mm -hmm. he also said a teenager with a gun is the most dangerous thing around. You Except know. for a white man with a gun. But I will say uh, that I, I found that to be fascinating uh -oh. because I feel yeah. like something that feels kind of obvious but that you haven't specifically mentioned yet was that being 
the way that she was, you know, dressing like a boy, Sandy. being kind of, ca- yeah, Sandy being kind of casted into like, or thrown out into the outcast. They talk, the out, the outcasts, the outcasts. <laughs> they talk about how she was like really kind of constantly, really horribly bullied, yes. but not just by her, her classmates, by like the grownups in the school. Like yeah. nobody was, was kind or good to her, but Holly. Right. And that's important. And also just remember middle school. Like remember yeah. how you felt in middle school. The rage, the fear, the desperate need to feel like you belong, but also want to say like fuck you to everyone. Right. Yeah, you give that person a gun, they might they might be dangerous. But I'm well, still not yeah. gonna say that I think teenagers with a gun are the most dangerous people <laughs> on the planet. <laughs> it's true. There's basically anyone very angry and not thinking straight. Um, then we meet Mary. Oh yeah, so we met Mel Mary and the Colliers so talking about Holly's grandparents, which is whom she lived with, but we'll get to that. The Colliers were well respected in their community. <laughs> the woman who cracked me up, she was the attorney. She yes. was real sassy she, she, with a I real have her thick name. accent. Her, her name was Judy Chadster. Judy Chadster. And she said they tithed regularly. So they were just a well-respected, you know, family in the community. And back in like the 60s, they adopted two kids. And there was, I can't remember the boy's name, but Carla was Kevin. the girl. Kevin and Kevin Carla. Kevin and Carla. And Carla was rebellious. And at 17, she met an ex-con and had a baby. And that baby was Holly. But Holly was left alone a good amount of the time when Har- when in Carla's custody. Cause she had a baby at six, seventeen. She was rebellious. She just wasn't having. She didn't want to ha- be have a kid and all that thing. So the woman, the poor, poor Holly got neglected for sure. And there was a significant, significant amount of violence that they said. And when she was a little bit older, th- there was a fight that went on between her and her mom, and. She tried to strangle Holly and basically CPS came in and takes her out of the house. And Holly is put in the care of Sarah Collier, the woman who raised Carla, Carla's uh, adopted mother. Adopted mom. And can I actually Super religious. Yes. Uh, Only because after, um, was it last week's episode or two weeks ago where you were like, did you also know that he was wanted on charges of rape and assault? And I was like, wait, Ooh, what? Because yeah. you had done some research. I decided yeah. that I would actually do some research this week. Ooh, do it. And so there's just a couple discrepancies. And I want to point them out because I think that the documentary does its best to tell the story in a really like succinct, specific way. But maybe they take some liberties. So mm-hmm. it tur- I'm not saying that that fight didn't happen. But that's not actually why Holly ended up living with her grandparents. Her mother was uh-huh. arrested. Mm-hmm on um, possession with intent to sell charges for marijuana and went to prison. And that's why she actually ended up living with her oh. grandparents. So I'm not saying that didn't happen, but that is not why she ended up living with that's them. That's not the reason. Yeah. Ooh, so was that her, that her mom, her mom went to jail. Oh, wow. Well, that's crazy. Yeah. And so now she's in the care of the woman who raised her mom, who, and, and the thing that woman, the Chadster lady, she goes, and you know how she turned out. So basically, Judy Chadster. So anyway, oh, she's so funny. She's so funny. And she talks about a text. So now we're back in the world of Sandy and Holly. So apparently Sandy sent, I mean, Holly sent a text to Sandy saying, God sent you to me. I don't, ca- I don't care what it says about gay people in the Bible. And the grandparents shared that her, so the grandparents were very, What's the word? Active in their church. Yeah. And, and they shared to the whole community, the whole uh, 
congregation. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. That their grandchild was in a gay relationship. And everyone knew because they the colliers told them. So they didn't keep it to themselves. They were like, dear God, pl- pray for her. She's a sinner. All these things. Yes. And also it's kind of insinuated. And by insinuated, I mean said out loud by John Thompson, the reporter, that they were mm. having their whole church try to pray the gay out of Holly. Yeah, that's so, so think like real like gay conversion bad bad Which doesn't bad work stuff it does because not being gay work. isn't wrong so exactly. don't try to pray it out of people so sandy's friends said that holly provoked sarah so sarah's the grandma holly provoked her grandma she would she would like smoke things to get her grandma to come down and then her grandma would come down and be like you're a sinner and a slut just like your mom you're gonna be ju- you're gonna end up just like her in prison I'm just adding that because now I know that that's where right. she is. And then she's, they said the wages of sin is death, um, which is, I'm like, sure, okay. But see, I had a, a I took a little bit of an issue with, um, I have her name somewhere, the friend, the choir friend of yeah. Sarah Collier's. I don't have, May Ellen, I think is her name. Mm. I have two issues. One, just the singing I was like, yeah, (laughs) just stop. And I'm not saying that to be mean because everyone who wants to sing should sing. But I was like, why do these asshole producers encourage her to do that on television for people to see? It felt cruel. So immediately I was like, ooh, you guys probably feel the same way about these church people that we, the audience who aren't from the Bible Belt and don't share their opinions feel. But you didn't need to embarrass her that way. I know. So I'm just going to say that. I think I blocked that out because it was so embarrassing. It was just so, so she's, she sings a hymn and it's so off key and oh dear God. And like, her voice cracks and they, I was just like, you guys are embarrassing this woman and we don't even know who no. she is at that point. But no. also I took, I had a real problem with the way that she was like, you know, the the consequence of, of sinning, of basically going against the Bible is death. And I, I was know. like, geez Louise lady. Well, that's just Take a, a deep breath. Take a deep breath and a voice lesson and move along. (laughs) I mean, you know, people hear the same, they they hear the same Bible theory since they're born and they believe that to be like fact. And it's just, for some people it is. And here's the thing, I have a lot of faith in my own heart, but that kind of stuff just makes me sad because it's, it's like a box that people can't get out of and be actual human beings, you know? No, I was very, I was very active actually in church until I was like a freshman or sophomore in high school and I could not reconcile what the church was saying with my own beliefs because I have a gay brother. Yeah. And I was like, I can no, and I had to, I stopped going even though like I was best friends with everybody there. That was like where I hung out with all my people. And I mean, I still hung out with them, but I wouldn't go to church anymore because I was like, I I can't do that. And so I have my own private beliefs and spirituality and Mm -hmm connection to something bigger than myself but I think religion they've just got so much wrong that it's hard for me you to know get on board I have with a it. similar I mean not exactly the similar but like my I'm half like Protestanty, and then my father I'm half Armenian Orthodox which is also Christian but it's like you know more I don't know, old older from the old country one of apparently Armenians are like the first to adopt Christianity as a nation who cares I don't but it good for them but my grandmother who has passed away since now for 20 years but she was like a saint and the most beautiful woman honestly the most sweet beautiful woman I've ever known in my life and I remember talking to somebody from the church that I went to that I was sort of raised in on the Protestant side 
and saying because she didn't go to the same religion, you know, wasn't the same religion, she'd be going to hell. And I'd be like, yep, not buying any of this shit anymore. Bye bye. And that's honestly yep. was my twist where I was like, I don't believe in any of this because the, I know this woman is a saint. I know she's a saint. Right. She was amazing. Anyways. Okay. Sorry. We digress. But so tensions start to rise between Holly and Sandy and their caregivers, especially. Okay. Everybody's blaming everybody. So because just so you know, Sandy's dad talks about how she skips school, gets into fights. And so like things, tensions are, are, are high. Um, you know, no, none, neither of the kids are doing the right thing. They're not good students. They're just and they're, out. And right. Getting in lots of trouble together. Together and loving up on each other in a lesbianic, beautiful way. So everybody's blaming everybody. But wait, I have a question for you, Avrin. Have you ever had a situation where, where like the families call your family and you're like, they're like, your our child says that you did and you're the bad influence or vice so, versa? So, yes, I have one, which is so funny because I was such a goody two shoes, not even an, intentionally. I just was, I think I never felt compelled to rebel because I was always given permission to do so I feel like I've talked about this on this podcast like my parents were like no curfew if you're gonna sneak out leave us a note so we don't think you've been taken by a predator you know and where it's like well thanks for taking all the joy out of rebelling against you by telling me do what you like just tell us about it um but I will say that I went to middle school and high school in Kansas and in Kansas there is a law because it's a big farming state that at the age of 14 you can get a learner's permit and you are allowed to drive to and from school and to and from if you have a job at the age of 14. So I am one of five, I'm, I'm one of five kids y'all. I have three younger sisters and an older brother who, who is much older than me. And so he had like a full-time grown up job and all that stuff. So when I got that learner's permit at 14, I was driving and I wasn't just driving myself. (laughs) I was driving my sisters to ballet and all that stuff. And I would also occasionally maybe give my friends a ride home because I was driving. (laughs) And one time the mother of one of my friends saw me in my car, saw her daughter in the passenger seat and my two younger sisters, my two youngest sisters in the back seat and proceeded to call my mom and rip her a new one about how I was endangering the lives of not just her (laughs) daughter, but my sisters and how dare my parents let me, you know, anyway. So I was the bad influence in that case. And it was funny because I was probably annoyed that I had to drive them somewhere. It's not like I wanted to drive them anywhere. Totally. But that's mine. (laughs) What about you? Well, I kind of have one. It's, it was, I remember it being traumatic and it was middle school. Um, maybe seventh grade it must have been seventh because it was not six because sixth I was in a yeah, I was in the library of all of sixth grade or in the uh, orchestra pit I don't know um no I think it was seventh or eighth grade and I was on because I rode the bus and I had like a boyfriend sort of who was interested in me or whatever we were writing notes back and forth to each other and a note that it didn't get to me something like that he he had written a note didn't get to me and it was in his his backpack or something, and it was Friday, and went um, he went home, and his mom went through his stuff, and it was this note about how, do you want to come over? My parents aren't home, something, something like this, or we'll go over somewhere, and we lived, anyways, 
I had no idea about it. And this guy's mom called my parents and chewed, because of course it's the girl, the girl's a slut, right? Of course. Chewed my yeah. parents out and basically were like, your daughter is a bad influence on my son and this, all this. And my parents, holy shit, they were so mad. And I was like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. I was like, it was so dramatic. Truthfully, they were just, there were two boys. It was actually, I think it was a note to the, his friend about like how they wanted to like do things, you know, like get all nasty with us me and a friend and like we had nothing to do with it also whatever but like how dare that mother right somehow say that my parents note, yeah and say a note that her son wrote yeah is because you're a bad influence like you didn't write the i'm note. just it was like for go you. fuck yourself honestly yeah if it was for me if it was from my like seventh grade ass that was like i can't wait to get this seventh grader into a room and just suck as jack at my friend's house or something like that i mean like <laughs> excuse my language and i really apologize for that mom but it just like it was nowhere near that. It was like no. nowhere near that. And you didn't write the note or I suggest didn't even write getting the note. together. This is where Parents, I hate that yeah. slut culture. I hate it so much because it's like I also came from an I mean this is just me like projecting my own shit but like I came in an, from an area where it was a very homogeneous type of people and I was like one of the only like sort of Middle Eastern people and I always feel like people exoticized me and mm -hmm. because I had I don't know I just felt that way so right because you were more exotic than all of the so the because white, I was not white exotic folk, I was you were, just slutty you were apparently. obviously trying to completely corrupt all of the boys right uh, makes I me can so tell mad. just from looking at about you it. no sure because that's bullshit. well now I am now that I'm <laughs> married I'm a married woman I don't do it I do it all I do everything <laughs> <laughs> In I your can. parents' house. In my parents' <laughs> Oh, we try, guys. It's been, I'm again it's been a long so couple sorry, weeks. Jackie. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Listen, it's okay. Side note, it's our anniversary on Saturday and we're we're uh, we're taking we're having the weekend away. We're gonna go Yay! camping. Let's Bonus get into that after. Yeah. Okay, sorry. So then now we get into the sort of sad stuff. So okay, that's that's kind of where I'm gonna throw it to you, Ab. Like I think Wait, where that's, did we go? So so her best friend is talking about Sandy starting to cut. Uh, do you guys know what cutting is? It's when, yes. yeah, kids or people like will make a cut on themselves and it like sort of relieves tension and stuff like that. At this point, Sandy starts cutting and apparently she had like over a hundred cuts on her body and her stepmom asked her, why? What is this from? And Sandy says it relieved the pain that she felt. But now without Holly, because what happened was Holly, so the grandparents... We're like, you can't, you guys can't see each other. You're forbidden to see each other. And so right. she felt like she had no, kind of no reason for living. Right. That's where we're okay. at. Okay, that's where we're at. Yeah. So as Vanya just mentioned, the girls um, had been getting into lots of trouble at school. And the documentary does not actually touch on this. But in my research, I discovered that they weren't just ditching school, but they were also like smoking weed all the time, drinking a lot. And that drinking and drug use kind of, got a little intensified and in the in the young remember we're talking middle schoolers started yeah. dabbling in things like cocaine and meth ah. and hard drugs so finally both sides so we've got the Ketchums and the Colliers right they agree that the the two girls should not be allowed to see each other anymore and they keep defying that and like sneaking away to see each other and then eventually um the Colliers and the Ketchums call the cops on their on their respective girls to basically say these girls are breaking the law doing drugs 
we want them put on probation. They have them put on probation. And one of the conditions that Sarah Collier, Holly's grandmother, insists upon is that one of the provisions in their probation is that the two of them are never to have contact with each other ever again. Not like Aww. just during probation, but ever again. So being kept from Holly, yes, uh, takes Sandy into a super dark place. She starts hurting herself. And the girls are just miserable apart, but they continue to kind of write letters to each other. And I actually wrote down one of the letters that Holly wrote to Sandy in the time that they were separated. And it said, Dear Sandy, I try so hard to really let you know how much I love you. What would I do if our love had no meaning? I want you to have faith that this will soon be over, but it's a price to pay, though. And I ask myself, is life worth living? Yours forever, Holly. So we're now in the summer of 2004. It's June 10th, and Sandy is outside shooting hoops in the front yard. And Beth decides to go out and check on her. And she says the reason she decides to go out to, like, check on her is because she realizes that she hasn't heard the ball dribbling or bouncing for a minute. So she grabs some, like, water for her, goes outside, and Sandy is nowhere to be found. So they don't really know what to do. They're kind of panicking. Their, their daughter is missing. They call the police, and they're told that, hey, she's been missing for, like, 45 minutes. We can't help you yet. You're going to have to yeah. wait 24 to 48 hours before we can intervene. <sighs> And because of the deep, dark, horrible place that Sandy had been in with the cutting, Tim is terribly afraid that she maybe has run off to kill herself. Then I wrote, there's an odd, weird moment about teddy bears. Yeah, I was like, what the hell is this? Yeah, like literally, you guys, in the middle of this story, I'm literally going to cut right back to June 10th right after this, but they show <laughs> the Ketchums, Tim and Beth, each holding a teddy bear and being like, this, she's how old? 17? And he's 32. And this bear got us, that got me through a lot. And this bear has been my daughter for many years. And I was like, holy was... shit, what are we seeing? Why did they show us this and then never <laughs> go back to it again? So if anyone out there personally um, is connected to this story or knows more information than what I found on the internet about these teddy bears, I would really like a DM dropped about it. Okay. <laughs> So it's June 2004, and Sandy has been missing for four days. And surprise, surprise, it turns out that Holly has also actually been missing. So now everybody's pretty certain that the two girls have run off together, and they are correct. On June 14th, four days after Sandy went missing, police find the two girls in Griffin, Georgia, basically living in an abandoned car, starving. They haven't had anything to eat in three or four days. Um... And things just really start to go downhill from there. Beth Ketchum is interviewed, that is Sandy's stepmom, and she says that she thinks that running away together was Holly's idea and that she hates to say it because she actually really loved, loves Holly and, like, loved when, you know, she was around before things got weird and bad. But she believes that Holly was kind of the instigator in all of the bad deeds that the girls did together. So we talked about the, pro the probation not being allowed to see each other. So one day, um, Sandy's at home because she's not allowed to go anywhere. And a couple of the kids from the neighborhood, so they lived in an apartment complex, and there was another apartment complex directly behind theirs, and several of the kids from the middle school all lived in the same area. So a few kids came over and said, like, hey, is, can Sandy come hang out with us? And Beth, her stepmother, was like, okay, that's fine. But then she looks at Sandy, and she's like, you were to stay 
within the backyard or like the back area of our apartment building where I can see you from the kitchen window. Otherwise, no go. And Sandy's like, okay. And they, she goes and leaves. A few hours later, Beth hears a knock on the door, goes to answer it, and it's Sandy who is so completely out of it that she couldn't even open the front door. That's why she knocked. Beth opens the door. Sandy collapses on the floor. Now, Beth actually worked as like a home health care professional. So she was um, not necessarily a nurse, but somebody that was proficient in, you know, the healthcare world and maybe recognizing yeah. the signs. And she can tell by her heart rate, the fact that she's vomiting, but also kind of unconscious, that Sandy is ODing. Like, she's in the middle mm. of an OD. So she calls 911. Uh, Sandy is rushed to the hospital. And it turns out that she had taken 16 OxyContin pills. Yeah. And after that, the Ketchums are like, okay, yeah. we got we, we to gotta seek some outside help here. So they take Sandy to a counselor who believes that some of these darker issues, like the cutting, the I'm assuming the overdose was an attempted suicide. Um, he says that he believes that, that might actually be kind of rooted in the fact that Sandy doesn't have any kind of relationship or connection to her mother and hasn't for her entire life. And he recommends that Sandy go and spend some time with her mom, whose name is also uh, Sandra, which is a little confusing. So I'll call her oh. mom Sandra. I'll call her mom Sandra and Sandy Sandy. Um, so Tim, who clearly does not think very highly of uh, Sandra, right. his, baby's, his baby's mama, um, is like, is, is this really what you want to do? And Sandy says, I really do. I'd like to go and actually stay with my mom for a little while. And he's like, Ugh, okay, all right. If that's going to help you, that's what we'll do. So they drive her over to Sandra's home. And both Beth and Tim are, like, really specific with Sandy's mom about, like, what the rules are, what the situation is. Like, this girl's on probation. You keep an eye on her. She's into the drink and the drugs and this girl, Holly, and she's not allowed to do any of that. <laughs> and then they leave. And it turns out that mommy, who was shitty when Sandy was a baby, is not all that much more concerned now because... Still shitty. She's still shitty. Yeah. She kind of lets um, Sandy do whatever she wants. She's 15 years old, no driver's license, lets her drive her car, lets her drive her car over to sneak in and see Holly, like lets her break mm -hmm. all of the rules. And so now the girls who are being kept apart, not just by their families, but technically by like the law enforcement with the whole probation right. thing, right. are sneaking around seeing each other. And we're going to cut to, so that all happened in, like I said, June, they went missing. They were found. Then probation separated. July, she goes to live with her mom. And now we're in the beginning of August. It's late, late, late on August 1st, 2004, when police receive a 911 call and respond to a house on Plantation Drive, which also just made me shudder and cringe and be like, God, yeah. I'm so glad I didn't grow up in Fayetteville, Georgia. Sorry, Fayetteville, but change some shit um <laughs> and they find a, a gruesome gruesome scene there is yeah. blood everywhere and a mix amidst the chaos and all of the blood evidence police discover two bodies that have both been brutally stabbed and are most likely already dead and the level of violence is actually like incredibly hard for police to understand because it's yeah. savage one of them describes i, I might, might have been the reporter but somebody in the documentary describes it as like pigs being slaughtered like it's oh my just gosh. messy 
I know. I feel messy, like I want to know messy. some of the like the lingo for the you know police. It's like we got a ten fifty two. I got a subject laying on the floor in a pool of blood. And right, then they're yeah. like, we got a twenty-two forty-two. We got a second one downstairs, laying on the foot of the there's stairs. There's a face ten up. fifty-one in the basement. If you could send EMT, yeah, I don't know. I'm sure there's so much lingo. So here's where things get, you know, real, even more <laughs> real than they've already been, because it's been pretty fucking real and pretty sad and horrible up to this point. Yeah. But shortly after that first nine one one call, police receive a second call, and that second call is from Sarah Polk Griffin. Y'all remember Sarah? Old Sarah, bestia. the the bestie yeah. of Sandy, but she was really feminine and like became popular, so they didn't really hang out anymore. Well, she calls nine one one, and she tells the police that that that. Um, and I kind of wrote down what they had transcribed from the documentary, but she tells police that um, there is a girl named Holly Harvey, and she doesn't get along with her grandparents. And she says that Holly is friends with her friend Sandy, and that the two girls came to her house in a big blue Chevrolet truck. She tells police that the girls had a butcher knife and were both covered in blood from head to toe. She then tells police when she asked them what happened, they told her that they had basically been jumped and robbed. And so she kind of is like, okay. And she goes and gets some towels to help them clean themselves off. And as uh, Holly is wiping the blood off of her arms, Sarah sees that there is uh, a list written in ink on Holly's forearm, and it reads, Kill Keys Money Jewelry. I'm just going to say that again. Kill Keys Money Jewelry. So after seeing this, Sarah's like, Holly, seriously, what happened? And at this point, Holly admits that she and Sandy had killed her grandparents. And then the girls take off. Police immediately go on the hunt for the for the girls. Um, Tim Ketchum, Sandy's dad, receives a call and is told to turn on the news. And that's how he finds out that police are looking for his daughter in connection with murder. And he absolutely cannot believe it is true. So now it's August 3rd, 2004. So technically it's weird because, again, documentary a little bit all over the place in terms of some stuff. It said like August 1st, the police are called, but the date of the murders is August 2nd. So I don't know if that was like a misprint or if they didn't expire until after oh, the cops arrived um, or how that all goes. Or they were but pronounced it's now, dead. Or, or they're, yeah, they're pronounced dead on the 2nd. But um, it's now August 3rd, 2004. And with Holly and Sandy on the run, detectives scour the crime scene for clues. And lead detective Bruce Jordan notices that Holly has dozens of pictures of herself at the beach, like taped up all around the mirror in her bedroom, like everywhere. And he becomes convinced that the girls have driven somewhere towards the beach, and he tells police to start searching the coast. Sidebar, in everything that wasn't the documentary, it says that police found the girls because they, like idiots, continued to use their cell phones, make calls, te- send text messages, and that's actually how they tracked them that down. That makes but I guess more it's, sense. It's way better TV that he's like, there's a photo of her at the beach that's where we'll find her. Oh, my like God. Was, that's so funny. I was like, Wait, well, we got to do some fact checking. Yeah. I have a question. In They talk about the – they don't say which body is yet at the bottom of the stairs or whatever. But And I, maybe you'll get to this. But they spoke about the how a face freezes in the last expression it, it's had. Oh, yeah. Tell uh, us like, about it, Vanya. Well, that's what I wanted to know. I mean, I actually had a question about it. Like – is that true? Have you heard of that? Does the face freeze the last expression it has before it die? Before a human, I, a person 
I know, mean, I, I don't I mean? actually, I can't like factually and definitively be like, absolutely. Well, because the invest, yeah, the police say they saw like a face of pure terror. I, w- I assume it was a grandma, right? She was on the bottom of the stairs or? She would have been in the basement. Yeah. Um, Maybe you'll get to that, but yeah. Oh, no, I didn't cover that part. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> Sorry. No, so no, gross. it's fine because they definitely mention it. I don't know if that's true. Part of me feels like it's entirely possible because yeah. if the minute you're struck down, right? So if death is instant, which then again also messes up with that messes with the theory that they were pronounced dead later, but whatever. Documentary's right. got, <laughs> got some shit to work on. Um, but if that, I mean, I guess if you are, if you're if a fatal like blow, stab, gunshot wound, hits you and it's instant and the look on your face is one of horror I guess I don't know for a fact that it wouldn't stay that way I would assume everything would go slack but again I'm not a professional or a medical examiner or a cop or any of those things but wait okay should have been so I have one more question and I feel like it might have been your calling but yes um did they say that the heart was cut out did or am I no but I know what you're talking about basically the there was he shows like it's like this giant ball, right? And it's like mm. he's trying to show the depth. Oh, right, that's what it was. Of a stab, a oh, stab thank wound you. into okay. the heart. It was weird. It was a little. I messy, was like, this did episode. they cut the heart out? They like, did not cut the heart out. Okay, I sh- please continue. I apologize. No, for my no, questions. you're totally fine. Those are good questions, and it's interesting the things that you choose to omit. When you're like, cover- and I'm like, I'll just leave out the horror struck face and the weird ball that symbolizes the depth of the knife stabbing. But those are, <laughs> those are pertinent. And thank you for asking and holding me to the truth of the documentary. <laughs> All right. So it's now, um, I guess August 3rd is what I said, right? Yep, the girls yep. who did in fact steal the Collier's blue Chevrolet truck have driven it four hours south of Savannah, Georgia to Tybee Island. Just by the by, to go to show you that these 15-year-old girls are not masterminds or brilliant criminals, aside from using their cell phones, which is really how they got tracked and caught. Right. I also kept the knife and the bloody clothes just hanging out in the backseat of the truck. The girls then meet some boys at the beach and convince them to let them stay the night at their home because they don't. One of them, they even say, one of the boys told police after the fact that they said, like, my grandmother recently passed away. We're orphans. We have no money. And so they take pity on this. The two boys and their mother, who, because it's the mom's house, they agree to let the girls spend the night there. So as police are tracking the cell phones, I'm really, really sorry, Bruce Jordan. I'm just going to keep saying it. As police track the cell phones, not your... uh, hunch that intuition. she's at the beach yeah. <laughs> your intuition your amazing skills um they spot the truck parked in between two houses and full SWAT team is deployed they're kind of circling both the houses and as this is happening one of the boys that the girls had met the day before kind of comes out onto the deck and he sees like a full SWAT team like guns circling running and he kind of calls out what's going on and he's told that they're looking for two teenage girls named Holly and Sandy, um, but they might be going by different names. And the boy says to police, oh, they're here. They slept here last night. Well, police storm the house. They find Holly and Sandy in an upstairs bedroom lying on the floor, kind of clutching one another and trembling like they knew they were caught. They're immediately arrested. Now, this is something that I think is pretty interesting because it's not really mentioned in the documentary, but I'm going to mention it here. Upon arrest, 
They find on both of the girls knives from the kitchen of the house that they were staying in at the beach. And so there's speculation that they were planning on hurting the two boys and their mother, maybe, so they could steal their car. Although that's just speculation. But they had knives on their bodies that had been stolen from the kitchen of the house of the people who were kind enough to let them stay there the night before. And the girls are arrested taken into custody and charged with murder so the the end of this documentary is nothing but for the most part court testimony with some interjections from some of the players like beth um the stepmom and judy the lawyer and um sarah the judgy friend but i kind of just spelled it i like wrote it all out for you guys so i'm gonna just read to you most of the court testimony in Holly's case, because the way it worked out is both girls ultimately never went to trial. They pled guilty. Holly only pled guilty because Sandy immediately upon arrest cooperated with police, showed remorse and agreed to testify against Holly. So Holly didn't really have any recourse and didn't want to go to trial. But this is a transcript between Holly and the judge when he's questioning her to decide sentencing. So A judge asks Holly to describe how they decided to kill her grandparents. Holly tells the court that Sandy was like, we should take their truck. And I said, and I didn't mean anything, but I said, well, we'd have to kill them to do that. But I didn't mean anything. Then she was like, well, we can hit them in the head with a lamp. But the girls are convinced that that would probably only like knock them unconscious for a few seconds and they could wake up and still stop them from taking the truck so that they would need to do something more permanent. Holly to the court says, so she, referring to Sandy, was like, go get a knife. So I went and got a knife. And she was like, she had stabbed the bed to see if it was going to be sharp enough. The judge, let me stop you right there. So you had practiced stabbing? Holly, Sandra did. The girls decided the knives were sharp enough to get the job done. Holly tells the court that Sandy told her she needed to convince her grandmother to come downstairs to her basement bedroom So she's like, all right, got this. And she starts smoking some weed down in her basement bedroom and blasts some music. Sarah Collier, too many Sarahs in this story, but Sarah Collier, uh, Holly's grandmother, does come downstairs. And as she's walking down the stairs towards the basement, is loudly complaining that she can smell some pot. The judge then asks Holly, did your grandparents come downstairs? Holly says, they said they needed to get a suitcase So I opened my bedroom door, my basement bedroom door. I let them in, and I closed my eyes. The judge. Closed your eyes and did what? Holly. I stabbed my grandmother. Judge. Do you know where you stabbed her? Holly. In the back. Judge. Do you know how many times you stabbed her? Holly. Maybe three times? Judge. When you stabbed her in the back, what happened the first time? Holly. She screamed, but it wasn't very loud. So after that initial stabbing, I'm now cutting away from court testimony, sorry. After that initial stabbing, (laughs) um, Carl and Sarah Collier, because Carl's there to kind of help, um, they actually end up kind of winning this, this struggle and this fight, and they've now got Holly pinned. But Sandra, who had been hiding with another knife, is eventually stirred into action when Holly screams, why aren't you helping me? So then Sandy jumps on Sarah Collier's back and um, Carl, sorry, Carl Collier heads towards the stairs and starts running up them. 
And that's when Holly tells Sandy to finish her grandmother because she has to go take care of her grandfather. Now we're back to court testimony. Holly, and this is quotes. So I ran upstairs and he had the phone in his hand and I pulled the cord out of the wall. Then he grabbed and grabbed the knife and I thought he was going to stab me. But I took the knife from my grandpa and I closed my eyes and I just started stabbing my grandpa real fast. Then the last time I stabbed my grandpa, a lot of blood came on me. But this is when Sandy came. She was up and she witnessed the last blow, the last disgusting blow. So yeah, she sees Sandy told police that she saw Holly make the final blow to um, Carl Collier's neck. She describes the feeling when she delivered the final and fatal blow as when she said the blood came on me it felt like a bucket of hot water barf 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 i mean yeah so the judge then tells holly that if the law would let him he would absolutely consider the death penalty in this case but since she is a minor that's not an option and both holly harvey and sandra ketchum are found guilty of two counts of malice murder Sandra is sentenced to three consecutive life sentences to be served concurrently. So that means basically one life sentence instead of consecutively. Whereas Holly is sentenced to two life sentences to be served consecutively. Sandy will be up for parole now in 2020, although I did look into it and didn't see anything about her getting paroled. And Holly Mm. will be up for parole in 2024. Based on the actions attitudes and um, I guess reactions of being caught of the girls Uh, police really do believe that Sandy is remorseful that she did what she did because she loved Holly and she thought that you know she was just doing what needed to be done to rescue her from these horrible grandparents but Holly was cocky and um, Bruce Jordan even mentions that after her arrest, as they're being let out, she starts like cackling maniacally, laughing at everything that's going on. And she never really seemed to show all that much remorse, except for in court when she's being sentenced. And then she was kind of sobbing hysterically. And then Holly says that she and Sandy promised that they would wait for each other because they are both up for, like I said, Sandy's up for parole in 2020, like this year. And, uh, Holly will be up for parole in 2024. Not that they'll be granted parole, but they're up for it. So they are not necessarily going to spend their whole lives in jail. And Holly said that she and Sandy promised that they would wait for each other. But at the very end of the documentary, we talk to Beth Ketchum. Again, that's Sandy's stepmother. And she says that she does not believe that will be true. That right. Sandy, Sandy, if Sandy and Holly both ever do get out of jail... She doesn't think that Sandy would ever speak to Holly again. She hasn't mentioned her name in years and does not seem to uh, harbor any loving feelings towards her. And then Beth also says, I loved both of those girls so much and I will always love them both. But they put me through hell and then she cries. And then we go back to May Ellen, the choir singer, (laughs) who says that doesn't matter what you do, how horrible it is, God will forgive you, and all you have to do is ask. And then I'm just kind of like, but then why did you have to pray away the gay? And then I get just really cranky with the documentary because I was like, you didn't wrap it up in a way that I found satisfactory other than you caught them. (laughs) But that's the end of the show. That's right. Hell to pay. Hell to pay. I mean, you know, that's where I'm always like, what could have avoided this whole thing? But... Well, and I will say this, something that was not in the documentary, 
because he didn't participate in it, but Kevin, so that would be Holly's uncle, Carla's brother, the other child that the Colliers adopted, um, actually had spoken to his father five days before the murder. And his dad had expressed some concern about Holly's increasingly violent behavior towards them and that she had even started threatening that she was going to kill them and that he was worried about it and he didn't know what to do. And, and Kevin had told his dad, well, listen, I don't think it matters how small it is from here on out. Any kind of like, like out of bounds step taken by her, you call 911. Like if you think you're in danger and five days after that phone call, they were murdered. Oh, wow. So, so she was thinking about it back then. She'd been, she'd been planning it. That's I wild. think. Yeah, I think yeah. so too. Yeah. Wow. Guys, there you have it. Holy crap. Holy. Hey. Yes. Thanks for joining us on this wonderful trip we're yes. having right now. Twisted Love have, number five. We have one more to go in our That's Twisted right. Love series. And I just want to put a shout out, guys. We're doing um, on our, if you join our Patreon, any level right now, actually, you will get the content that we're putting out right now, which is covering Michelle McNamara's, well, actually, it's it's her book and her documentary we're covering um, the documentary is on HBO and Michelle McNamara has passed since, but she is just honestly a goddess. And I think that we are sort of obsessed with her. Would you say? We're I don't a know. lot obsessed with her, I would say. Yeah. But yes. So ju- we're doing us on uh, the journey. Yeah. We're doing a totally separate series, if you will, where we're covering I'll Be Gone in the Dark and just like love exploding all over Michelle McNamara and the brilliant writer true crime obsessed amazing woman that she was who solved so many incredible you know cold cases or helped discover those answers and she's just so inspiring and so yeah if that interests you at all as Vanya said you can just um start uh, become one of our patrons on patreon that's right go to www.patreon that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash rom crime we do appreciate it. Also, we just thanks for thanks for listening, guys. Yeah. We love you. We love you so damn much. Mm-hmm.